Happy Mother's Day. Any thoughts, questions? We'll start with this morning, and then we can open up to anything, or maybe we can go home early for Mother's Day. We'll see what happens. So, you will decide. Any questions? Let's start off with a simple definition. Um, in my mind, gossip is the same as slander. Is that true? No. Um, they're very, very, very closely related. Um, I generally think slander has the connotation of falsehood attached to it. So if you, so Paul says, as we are slanderously reported as saying, he means I never said any such thing. Um, that, that people were accusing Paul of teaching, let us sin that grace may abound. And so he says, as we've been slanderously reported the saying, gossip can simply be speaking gospel truth that somebody something did, but you shouldn't be repeating it. It's true. Why are you telling it to that person? You know what I mean? So that, that's the subtle distinction I make between the two. Not, there's not much of a difference, but to my mind, that would be the difference. That sometimes um, my dad used to say, I'm just stating facts. Well, okay, if that's true, then maybe you're not slandering, but you still may well be gossiping, right? It's, it's my thought, but... Um, are you just stating facts? For those, for those who are listening at home, um, our resident sage just informed us that women gossip, men state facts. Although I don't think many of us were persuaded or compelled by my father's argument even back in the day. Were you ever, Mother? Oh, he's just stating facts. Well, that's okay, then. Um, yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'll open up broader to anything we've covered in the last couple of weeks or anything in, in general. Or we can go home early. Submissive to your husband. So your definition, because I have a lot of people give me their own definitions, mm -hmm. but because this can be, I mean, submissive under a lot of categories, I guess. But um, are we do we have a right to say no? Well, I mean, it, it, that's a broad question. I'd say, of course, it's all matters down to the particulars. Submissive doesn't simply mean you're a yes man. Yes, 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 yes. It just means, um, literally, the word means to order yourself. It's hupo tasso. Um, hupo under is in like a hupodermic needle goes under the skin. You're in ordering yourself. It's actually a military term. Under someone else's authority. You're ordering your conduct under somebody. Um, that's submit. And the, the model that we saw of submission is the church to Christ. Um, and so the general principle of all biblically recognized authority, whether it's parents over children, husband, wife, government, person, whatever, is that you, um, to submit is a combination of obedience and honor. Um, as far as I can tell, that's it. That's the general principle. Now, that doesn't mean a wife, as a helpmeet, isn't saying, are you sure? I think it might be better this way. It doesn't mean that you don't ever disagree. It doesn't mean you don't ever um, have your own perspective. What it does mean is ultimately, um, when there's a divergence of wills, that whoever you're submitting to, you are going to follow, submit after them, unless they're telling you to sin. Um, that that's my understanding. I am, you know, um, anyone want to run with that, disagree, flesh that out? So I'd say that really the category where you can dig your foot in and say no is if your husband's calling on you to sin. Um, other than that, if, if, it, if he's unpersuaded, um, my understanding of, of the, it, yeah, as easy as me as a man to say that, I get that. Although I tried to make the point in the message that Paul had this young single guy, Titus, telling the older women what, the, what to teach the, so I feel at least in somewhat better company, but yeah, 
Um, but anyone want to run with that? I mean, but I, I just push it across the board. I don't see like it will flesh itself out differently, but whether it's to Caesar or whether it's to leadership in a church or whether it's children to parents, the, the same concept is to give the appropriate honor and to um, order yourself and ultimately obey. Um, that's, I mean, you go to Ephesians and it's as, as the church is to obey Christ, so wives to their husbands. I don't write the mail, I deliver it, but that seems pretty black and white. Um, it's simply a matter of whether we vomited it up or not. Yes, Lee. Well, it, I mean, yeah, that is kind of a, a difficult thing, especially for us opinionated women. I think maybe Kim's in that uh, that camp. And but then, our only hope is to pray and encourage our husbands, and hope our husbands are doing the Christ-like behavior that makes it possible and easier for us. It wouldn't always be easy, but at least it's something that, you know, in a loving relationship that there's going to be, he's going to be gracious and flexible and listen. And then it will come down to the point many times there's a tiebreaker and the husband gets the tiebreaking vote. Right. So, and, and it's, I mean, Serena and I will, will disagree on things and she can disagree strongly. I, I hope that if I need to, that I can say, look, okay, I think we're, we're talking. Still, this is where I want to take our family. This is what I want to do. And there's a sense in which Serena gets to then just say, I mean, you go to uh, other passages praying to God that, um, you know, if I'm wrong, he'll fix my wagon. <laughs> you know, some of the most convicting things I've ever heard from my wife are, Jeremy, if you're convinced that's what's good and right for our family, then I'll, I'll try to trust you. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I better have done my math. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and you could say that snidely as a weapon, you know what I mean? But, uh, but, but yeah, and there's plenty of times where I defer to her. So it's not simply the wife jumping to, but um, it's, it's, um, it's a pattern of service. If you go, go, to, go to Ephesians. I want to make the point. Biblical authority and responsibility go hand in hand. And so the way I like to think of it is that you go to Ephesians, um, actually five. God has tasked the husband with a job. Um, and I think out of the two, it's the harder one if it's done and embraced. Um, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ give himself up for his bride, the church? How did he die? He was crucified. So C.S. Lewis famously said, that means the husband whose marriage is most like a crucifixion is most living this out. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In what particular way, Paul? He gave himself up. He was willing to be impaled. Okay. Doing what? Further. So that... Oh, that he might sanctify her, cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, so that he might present himself, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Okay, so the husband's given a responsibility to sanctify, shepherd, wash his wife, and, and so the analogy I'll make is something like this. The, the dentist or the doctor is serving me, and I need to listen to what he says and hold still when he says hold still and go ah when he says ah and roll over when he rolls over, that the, the responsibility and the authority go hand in hand. Go to, go to Hebrews 13. Um, so how can the husband wash his wife with water or the word if she won't listen to him? Right? So there's a, certain, there's a sense like hold still while I give you a bath in essence, biblically speaking. Um, and the same thing we see when it comes to authority in the church. And the first half of this verse is what most people cringe at. It's the second half that keeps me awake at night. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders, and there's our word, and submit. Order yourself under them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those left to give an account. 
And so the American revolutionary independent Adam in all of us bristles at obey and submit to anybody. I'm terrified of giving an account for people. And so the, the logic is if I and the other elders are going to give an account for people, that we're going to answer for their blood, to use the language of Ezekiel, then we're given a measure of authority to carry out that shepherding. Otherwise, how else could you do the job? Because um, as we know, not everybody likes you know, to, uh, to follow anyone else's leadership. All of us, it's hardwired into us. Uh, and especially as Americans, in a country that was founded on revolution, um, it's just, you know, don't tread on me is written over all of us, all of our hearts. Um, and so it's, it's challenging. But yeah, responsibility and authority generally go hand in hand. So uh, it's not that God gave husbands the authority because they're better. He gave them a task and he gave them the authority to accomplish the task. Um, that's my picture of it. So, um, yeah. Anyone else want to run with that? Yes, Deb in the back. Well, as I've, um, <clears throat> like what you said, as I've been prayerfully um, dealing with all this for almost 40 years, um, it comes right down to do I trust you, Lord, or don't mm. I? And um, mm. that's been where it meets me, is the Lord knows the ins and the outs and what's going to happen, and it's in his hands. Let me let me use and let me just press this a little further. Uh, you, th thank you for asking this question. This is good. Go to First Peter three. And in Peter, he's dealing with the notion of suffering. It's the overarching theme of the book, helping a suffering church. So before you go to three, go to one. I'll show you what I mean. Um, Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's writing to a church that's suffering, a church that is um, persecuted, and he again and again will tell them I actually did a research paper on this through chapter 2 in seminary titled Evangelistic Submission, um, not just of wives, but in general. Um, I'll share what I mean. So chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which keep war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. That's the first of a couple of examples where Peter's going to argue that your life will so convict that it's going to preach its own little sermon. So let me get to verse 13. Um, it's a very unhelpful chapter break where chapter 3 is because what's introduced in verse 13 goes all the way down through 3-7. It's one uninterrupted argument. And... If you know anything about grammar, do you, okay, you guys know what participles are? Participles is an ing word. And grammatically, it's a verb, but it functions like a verbal noun. A participle gets directed by the, the head finite, na, finite verb. Okay? So the word submits could occur a number of times. The only time it's the imperative structure is right here in verse 3. Be subject or submit the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Then he's going to go through case by case what those institutions are. And so you look down at verse 18, servants, and the Greeks literally being subject. It's clear as you're reading the grammar, we're, we're, this is a case example. It's all tying back to 13. You get down to um, chapter 3.1, likewise wives, wives, being subject. And so it's still a development of the same thought. So here's the principle. We are called to be subject, verse 13, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor supreme or governors as those sent by him to punish those who do evil, to the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice again, as we 
submit ourselves, and that may invite suffering, it's going to silence mouths of scoffers. This gets back to the Word of God being reviled or confirming and making beautiful truth. So the first stance is, and what I will point out to husbands, because you can think, oh, it's awfully easy for me to talk. I've got to submit and honor the government as well. And again, this all comes from the top down. A husband has no more business expecting or calling on his wife to give him honor or submission than he's willing to give to the government, and not just when your guy got elected. And so you model that, husbands, and the parents model that to their children. What does it mean? And again, are our children learning that being under authority is terrible? You can't wait till you get out from underneath it. It's awful. Well, I would not be surprised if they rebel and view the same thing about having to listen to you and me. So, or do we try to show them the beauty in it? So, you know. Okay, so there's your head, head command. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme, the governors. Um, verse 15, this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put the silence against the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but like certain ESV, slaves of God. Do loss means slave. They just wimp out. Most The Holman Standard doesn't, but most translations wimp out at that point. Um, so let me get to our first case example. Servants or slaves. And Peter will consistently argue from the greater to the lesser, which is a way of arguing, saying, if this holds true in an extreme case, how much more does it hold true in a lesser case? That makes sense? You get how that works? So he's going to picture the worst possible case for a slave. Slaves or servants, verse 18, be subject to your own masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Why? Now notice what happens is a specific instance now gets a general principle. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one or anyone. He's taking a general truth and applying it to slaves. Generally what is true is that it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So the first case example he picks is a slave whose master beats them for doing a good job. Okay? And of course the implication is if your master doesn't beat you for doing good, how much more so... Okay, so moving on. Verse 21, now here's something we don't often mention in our evangelism. For to this you have been called. (laughs) And now we're talking to all Christians generally, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, argument from greater to lesser. He's sinless. Anyone else want to make that claim? Raise your hand. And if Jesus could do it, how much more should we? That's the argument, greater to lesser. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, Jesus kept submitting to his Father. He kept on submitting to his Father. He didn't take matters into his own hands. When he was being mistreated, when he was being taken advantage of, when he was being abused, he trusted God. So there's a model of submission. And then Peter's going to point out what, how much good came as a result of Jesus submitting and suffering. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You, you and I are only able to be forgiven and saved because Jesus was willing to submit and suffer because it was the will of his Father. And yet we get tempted, me with the government, my children with me, wives and husbands, to say, I deserve better than this. I, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God submitted himself and suffered, and we're too good for it. Then, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Notice the word that chapter 3 opens with. Likewise. Homois. The same as, which then raises or begs, Serena, raises the question, like what? Like Jesus submitting to the crucifixion, like a slave whose master beats him for doing good. You take your pick. 
You don't have many options. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then he'll go to the worst case. So that even if some do not obey the word, which would both cover an unbeliever and a disobedient Christian, doesn't because that, that, that eliminates the option. Well, my husband's a jerk. My husband's a fool. My husband's an unbeliever. My husband's rebellious. My husband's wicked. Okay? So even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word. By the conduct of their wives, when they see a respectful, pure conduct. What, what is Peter assuming the, the greatest apologetic to convert a rebellious husband? It's not long speeches. It's a godly, chaste, holy, and pure life. Evangelistic submission. That's, that's the, the world's mouth gets stopped earlier in this chapter. It goes on, um, but but he's picking the worst case scenarios, and so he has no problem looking at a wife who says, "But you got to understand, my husband hates the word. He doesn't obey the word. He he's a rank pagan." Okay, how much more so if you're married to a Christian? How much more so if you're married to a man who tries to obey God's word? Um, and so so Peter goes through the whole case. Um, Dealing example by example by example. And this is part of the reason why I say I think submission means submission means submission because he gives the head command, be subject. And then without making radical qualifications, he speaks to slaves, he looks to Jesus, he speaks to wives. It's, it's all submission. It's, it's all the same relative thing lived out in different contexts. So I, I don't think this is a topic scripture's difficult to understand. It's just difficult to receive. Um, Okay, I've done a lot of talking. Thoughts, questions? It's heavy stuff, no doubt. Anybody? We're going home early today. On any other topics? Okay. Then, I, oh, we do have a question. Okay, I was just about to let you do the unthinkable. Jeremy. You took us to our, the First Timothy 2, where, where it was talking about um, the women's role in church. Yeah. And it seems so, so blatantly clear uh, what Paul's idea was for the women in the church there. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, as a Christian community today, yeah, uh, and maybe maybe you need to put quotes around the word Christian, but as a Christian community today, we really struggle with that. And yeah. I was just curious if you've come across any uh, attempted <laughs> um, defenses against First Timothy two from from people who yes think that women can be teachers in the church. Let's go to First Timothy two. We're going to have a fun morning. <laughs> okay. And if you want to go on our sermon archive, we went through the pastoral, the so-called pastoral epistles, and so um, you can listen to a particular passage if you want. These, these, these three books, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, uh, have been taught through, so if, if you want to go deeper, that's good. So um, let's pick it up in verse 11. No, no, pick up in 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women to profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived became a transgressor. It shall be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Okay, great. We've managed to hit on the two most in, in, offensive passages on this topic in one morning. All right. No, fair enough. It's God's word, and we shouldn't be embarrassed about it. Um, the simple question, have I heard people try to justify or argue this stuff? Yeah, sure. Um, there's usually two, two lines of doing it. 
Um, I'll often refer to this. There's people who come at the Bible from beneath it and people who come at the Bible from on top of it. And let's deal with the last one first. Um, mostly, and this is a talk I'd have a lot when I was ministering on Simpson campus a couple years ago. If you're coming at the Bible from on top of it, you're the authority. Um, you're coming at the Bible, and what you're in essence saying is, God, you need to explain yourself, justify yourself to me if you want me to accept what you're saying. And so if you're coming at the Bible from on top, when you get to something you don't like, you don't understand, what you say is, explain yourself. And I'm refusing to accept this till I see this as good, right, and true. And so from that perspective, it's easy to say, this is just first century sensibilities. Paul's clearly a bigot. Um, and he's just reading in the prejudices he had from Roman culture, and he's just reading them into the text. Another approach from this same on-top-of-the-Bible approach is what's called trajectory hermeneutics. Trajectory hermeneutics says that um, the Bible and the biblical writers couldn't say some of all of the radical implications of the things that they're getting at, so they set a trajectory that when followed consistently would yield to these results. So Paul in first century Rome could not say, you know, women should teach, do whatever, but he could set in motion these principles. And, and, and so they'll point to something like slavery, right? The Bible doesn't, the New Testament doesn't have much to say one way or the other about slavery as a good or bad thing. Paul does say, if you can be free, be free. Mostly it deals with it as a thing that is. And then it says, okay, here's how you to function as slaves. Here's how you to function as masters. Yet most people recognize that the application of Christian principles mostly about the image of God in man, led to the abolition of slavery in most of the world. It was Christians like William Wilberforce leading the charge on that. So in that case, the, tra the trajectory people will say, you see, the, this trajectory was set up, and even though the New Testament couldn't outright condemn slavery, over time, as the principles are embraced, it, it, slavery gets removed. And they want to apply the same thing to, to this. The, the difference is we've got a very different trajectory here. Um, we've got 12 apostles, they're all male. We've got um, Old Testament, New Testament. There's not a movement of this line. So it, it's much harder, I think, to set that up. It, it assumes, for that trajectory to work, it assumes, and they'll make a big deal out of, in Christ there's neither male nor female. Certainly, that's absolutely true. In Christ, my wife and my standing in Christ is, is independent of me being a man and her being a woman. It's not different because I'm a man than she, than she is a woman. I'm, I'm, in Christ, we're on the same level playing field at the foot of the cross. Yet clearly, in the same letter where Paul says in Christ you see the male or female, and this is where the, this type of hermeneutic gets becomes problematic, they'd have the same author in one chapter destroy gender distinction, and then in the next chapter talk about men and husbands and wives. And so unless Paul's like schizophrenic, you, you want Scripture to agree with Scripture. And they want to take the one statement, there's neither male nor female, absolutize that, steamroll that over everything, when you can absolutely amen and affirm that. In, in Christ, my worth before God, I'm not more of an image bearer than my wife. I don't have a greater value than my wife. I don't have a greater dignity than my wife. We both got saved the same way, right? Um, we're both valuable to God in the same level, precious in his sight. And on earth, he's got different marching orders for us as we relate in our home. Those are not mutually exclusive concepts. So that's the on-top approach, generally. The on-top approach, basically, is we don't like this, so we're going to pick and choose what we like. The, the problem with coming to the Bible that way is it becomes a mirror. And what's going to happen if I receive the parts of the Bible I agree with and I reject the parts of the Bible I don't agree with? What's going to be left over? Me. Those parts of the Bible that reflect me and what seems good to me will be what I'm left with. And I don't learn anything, because anything I didn't show up to the Bible with already is gone or redefined. And so the Bible, and no wonder I like what I see when I open the Bible and it's a mirror, because I like me. I always thought that. You know, I, I, I say this again and again and again and again, that the test of biblical authority is not those passages you like. The test of biblical authority is what do you do when you come up against something you hate? What do you come up against something that seems ugly to you, seems awful to you? What then? Who's God? Who's boss? Uh, I'll tell one remarkable story of this um, that really impressed, impressed me. Um, um, Linda's daughter-in-law, I first met um, when she, uh, Greg Rulak used to bring bundles of Simpson kids over to my house. And seriously, just grab them, throw them in a car, and drive over to my house. 
And um, no, no, I'm not. I'm not even joking. Um, and so Greg Rolak, one of the people, one of the people Greg brought over, came back a couple of days later because she had been having a conversation with Greg, where Greg asked her what she wanted to do when she grew up, and she said she was going to be a Methodist pastor. To which Greg said something like, "You can't do that." <laughs> and then goes, "Yeah, go talk to the kidders." And so, showing up on our doorstep is an angry, slightly in tears, confused young woman, Simpson. So Serena and I sit down and talk with her. And um, sure enough, I mean, this, this girl had gone through all of the all of the camps and training and everything that you can go through in the Methodist Church. It was a youth worker in her church, and you know she was at Simpson, which is a Methodist school. And so we had two conversations on this point. The first one, I just said, well, uh, I'll be happy to jot down the texts that Greg's coming from. But before you even look at them, really, I think you need to resolve a question, which is, does God get to be God even when you don't understand? Or do you only have to obey God once you agree with him? Um, it's, I think it's totally, perfectly fine. And I do this frequently. But like a child, Daddy, I don't understand. <laughs> It seems to be scary. When I have to, when I just had my son go to the dentist and they had to get a needle. He did not want the needle. He did not see it as beautiful. He did not see it as lovely. He did not see it as good. And it really came down to, son, you, you need to trust me. This is for your good. You need to trust me. And he did. It took him a little bit, but he got, got his body under control and he trusted me. He got through it. So is God God? And, and so it's fine to say to God, I don't get this. This looks really ugly. This looks awful. But you're God and I trust you and it's okay. Or do you come at it like, until you explain yourself, God, there's no way I'm doing this. That's, that's the question you've got to ask because you're probably going to see some things that are going to look ugly to you. And so she came back about a week later after looking at those passages and came in and, okay, what do you, what do you think? Well, I read those passages. Okay. What do you think? Uh, it says I can't be a pastor. What do you think about that? I hate it. What are you going to do? I guess I'm not going to be a pastor. Praise? No. It, that really impressed me as faith because what you're saying is nothing in me resonates with this. Nothing in me thinks this is good. And I don't like it because he's God I guess i got to change the direction of my life. Now, in God's grace, within a few months, this same young old lady began to see the beauty and the wonderful and the delight and actually shook up things at Simpson when she had a slam poem that basically was how she wanted to be a, like a housewife. So much so that the professor was like, what? And then she retitled it, Not a Persona Poem, to make it really clear, and is now happily married and a mother and... Everything's beautiful. But it started with, will you trust me? And then, after she said yes, and God said, I'll show you how this is good and beautiful and right. right." But that's the challenge. So that's coming at the Bible then now from the bottom, where the Bible is the authority. So the first, there's the first group of people that simply, <laughs> we've learned so much more since then, and so whatever. Okay, fine. But that's not where most of us are coming from. There are some attempts from underneath the Bible to argue that. Um, the first is the argument that this is culturally dependent. Um, this is cultural. And they'll point to something like head coverings or something. And just as, you know, head coverings are the cultural thing of the day, so this is the cultural. Our culture has shifted. We've embraced the equality of the sexes. The problem with that argument is that Paul doesn't just simply say it, but he says why. And his argument is twofold. One, order of creation. Two, the events of the fall. To which I then have to ask, if those two arguments upheld his position 2,000 years ago, what has changed so that they no longer do? You see what I'm saying? If, whether or not you buy it, if the order of creation and if the events of the fall backed up, grounded, supported Paul's position 2,000 years ago, how do they not do so today? Okay? That's the problem. It's also a problem because um, another attempt is to say that um, order and submission is a result of the fall. They'll go to that passage in Genesis 3 where it says, "He will rule. your desire will be for your husband, he'll rule over you. And there's all this, all of this tug of war is a result of the fall. Right? Paul's first example is pre-fall. It's Genesis 1 he's looking at. Before sin entered the world, Paul, 
Paul is saying, we have the ground for order in marriage. Because after all, what does God have Adam do? Name the animals. What does that do? It's a demonstration of authority. What does Adam do when God makes his wife? He names her. Names her. Um, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. And if I can't, if I lose my wife in the supermarket, you'll, you'll hear me go, Isha! And then somewhere from like three aisles down, Ish! It cuts through. It cuts through nicely. And she knows there's nobody on earth yelling Isha running around. So it, it works. It, not. We do this. I kid you not. We do this. That's right. Oh, it'd be great if my wife had her phone on her. <laughs> Certainly. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was on my honeymoon with my wife. I was in New Hampshire. I was speaking at the church that I had uh, come to right after getting saved. And I left her at the church to go out to lunch with some people. It's not quite as bad as that, but it's pretty close. Um, we, we, we had set up to go out with our friends to, church, to lunch after church, and I walked to the church, didn't see her, and assumed she'd caught a ride with them. Did one more walk through, didn't see her, grabbed my bag, got in the car, and drove to the place we were supposed to go to meet for lunch. And I just assumed she'd caught a ride with them. She hadn't. <sighs> And, uh, yeah, it was, you, could, you could talk to my wife and get all the details, but that's the short of it. Um, yeah, that's the short of it. Other attempts, Jeremy, um, to, to, from underneath, from people that, because there are some people that do want to submit to the Bible, do want to be used in authority. They'll really try to, uh, to argue what the word teacher of authority means, um, and they'll try to press that around some. And especially there's a whole lot of work done on headship, what it means to be a head. Um, they'll try to turn it into source, like a source of a river or something. Um, and, and Piper and Grudem have got some good books on this that, that deal with a lot of those arguments. Those, I mean, does anyone want to, any other, any other arguments like Zeb that you've encountered from under the authority of scripture that honor the Bible that try to deal with it? What? No. Joel? Oh, your your men and women. Well, no, and even okay. Take well, take no, and let me let me show you something. Go to First Corinthians real fast. Go to First Corinthians, um, fourteen. Because as we saw this morning, women have teaching ministries. What I don't believe they're allowed to is the teaching offices of the church, institutional structured positions of teaching authority, recognized by the whole body. Um, so all Christians are called to teach. Colossians 3, teaching one another in psalms, hymns, and songs, spiritual songs. But that doesn't mean everyone holds the office of teacher, right? Okay. So here, we'll look at, if we're going to take our tour of, you know, ugly Bible passages, we aren't done until we hit 1 Corinthians 14. Not ugly, but you know what I mean, inflaming or whatever. Let's just, let's just do the trifecta. Okay, here we go. Um, but I think it's important to set the context because Paul's going to say some really strong things. Be silent, right? Um, let's start. Let's actually start there and work our way backwards. Um, so 14. I haven't finished highlighting this. I got through Luke, but in copying my older Bible's highlights over, I'm so I'm blind here. I'm trying to find it. Hold on. Um, 33. Thank you. Um, 33B. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for women to speak in church. And I was like, dang, that is rough. You can't even ask where the bathroom is. <laughs> That's not what it's saying. I want you to jump back to verse 26. Okay? A couple, couple points to note here, too. We are talking about corporate gatherings. What then, brothers, when you come together? Okay? Uh, this is not day by day, house by house. This is the corporate gatherings. Each one is a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. What do those things have in common? Hymn, lesson, revelation, or tongue, or language, or an interpretation. They are all the gifts of words. 
linguistic in nature, right? What they're saying is when the church comes together, different people are gifted with language and words to edify the body. And then Paul starts giving his governing principles for how the use of language should be used when we all come together. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue or in a foreign language, let them be only be two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. Notice we're talking about corporate gatherings. And speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not the God of confusion but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent. What he's saying, I believe, is in the context of the corporate gathering where gifts of words are used for group and corporate edification, the women are not participating in that ministry. I don't believe he's saying anything more than that. So that's perfectly harmonized with 1 Timothy 2. The other reason I think that is if you turn back to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has women prophesying and praying. So clearly the prohibition in 14 is not absolute. Whatever you do with 1 Corinthians 14, you've got to harmonize it. And again, unless you think Paul's schizophrenic and contradicting himself in the same letter, you've got to deal with 1 Corinthians 11. It's the head coverings passage, but we're not going to worry about head coverings. What we're worried about is prophesying and praying. And we will not go down the head coverings path. Not this morning, at least. Um, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I commend you because... You remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head were shaven. And he just goes on. Here's the point. Here are women prophesying. Women prophets. Agabus had daughters who are prophetesses in the New Testament. So it is not as though Paul, in what he says in 14, two chapters later, is three chapters later, is nullifying what he says here. Clearly, there's room for women in a prophetic function in the body. The big difference in 11 and 14 is I don't see in 11 when you all come together. He does bring that up when the discussion shifts over to the Lord's Supper. So I would guess that the prophetic ministry of these women are taking place outside of corporate gatherings. He doesn't look sold. Okay. Notice, notice verse 17, 18. Here's why I say that. Notice the transition to the Lord's Supper discussion. For in the first place, when you come together as a church. So now we're talking about a discussion of what takes place when we all come together. No such introductory phrase at the beginning of 11. It's also interesting. I love that little phrase. You come together as a church. That's why we're the church that meets in Martinsville. We're the church. We come together as a church. Together, we're the church. Building's not the church. We're the church. Anyway, those are all the hard passages on women in the church that I'm aware of, and we've just done a, a whirlwind tour of them. Questions on any... Oh, Siobhan, microphone, please. Jeremy, could you address maybe Deborah the prophetess and judges? Because that seems like it's more of a leader. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. Deborah in in the book of Judges um, leads and is a judge in Israel. Absolutely. I think the point of that is to shame Israel. I, I think the whole point is, I mean, in in, in the prophets, um, God mocking Israel and and women will be your rulers. And so is, the whole point of the judges is God gives them the judges they deserve. Samson is a glutton and a drunkard and a profligate, and he sleeps with prostitutes. And God will deliver Israel through this shameful, disgusting man. Right? I mean, that's kind of the point. He's a fool. And so they, they don't deserve an honorable leader. They get Samson. The point of Samson isn't be a big, strong guy like Samson. Personally, since Samson's strength is supernatural, I picture him with a big pot belly, beer gut, you know, and he's scrawny. I think it'd be way more impressive and supernatural of his strength than if he looked like, you know, Schwarzenegger back in the day. 
you wouldn't be as impressed with the supernatural strength, but some short, pot-bellied Jewish guy is knocking down buildings. You're like, whoa! But that's just, okay, that's just me. But every depiction I've seen of Samson has him svelte, you know, and all ripped. Like Clark Kent, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, you picture what this guy does. He just lies around drinking and partying and sleeping with prostitutes. I don't think he's in good shape. What? And he grows his hair out. Long hair. He's got a mullet. He's got a mullet. Okay, okay. Um, so, so no, so Deborah, because Barak won't step up, in fact, it's in there. Let me go, let's go to Judges. Zeb, you want to say something? You look, oh, no. Okay, let's go to Judges. Uh, what is that? Judges 3? I think so. We'll find out shortly. Um, is it five? Four. Okay. I was close. Judges four. Okay. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And after Ehud died, the Lord sold him into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived. This ties in with Zeb's daughter's name. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I knew it off the top of his head. Yeah. Okay. The commander's army of Sisera, who lived at Harash, okay, Heroth Sheth Hagoyim. Um, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. This is the pattern in Judges. The, the Lord delivers them. They obey for a little while. They disobey. He gives them over to oppressors. They cry out to the Lord. He delivers them. Seven cycles of ups and downs through Judges. Okay, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The people of Israel came to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinon, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go Gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 of the people from Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera and the general of Je- Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, so meet, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. So Deborah says, hey, Barak, aren't you supposed to go fight? Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said... I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So the whole point here is a lack of weak, the lack of male leadership, a weak male. And so God is, is shaming Israel, in a sense, through this. So it's absolutely God has used um, women judges, women prophetesses. In the New Testament, um, the, the daughters, is it, it's Agabus, right, Zeb? The daughters of Agabus were prophetesses? Okay. Um, so what we're talking about is, is in the church institutional authority, institutional recognized positions. Deborah is clearly holding the institutional position of judge. But in the context of Judges, I think that's meant to show things are wrong. Because Judges is going to culminate with a priest having his concubine gang-raped to death and then cutting her into 12 pieces and sending them out to the 12 tribes. That, that What you're seeing, and that we're a refrain in Judges, in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in the sight of his own eyes. And what you're seeing is here's a picture of life where everyone's got their own truth. It's postmodernism gone to seed. I got my truth, you got your truth, I'm going to do what's right in the sight of my own eyes, you're going to do what's right in the sight of your own eyes. It does not bring in a utopia, it brings in the Saw movies. And so this is a step along that path would be my, my take. She's not doing anything wrong. I'm not saying she's out of line or something. What I'm saying is simply, this is yet another picture and point of things aren't where they're supposed to be in Israel. Um, anyone want to add to that, Ramadan? we got five minutes. Well, if there are no other questions, I will uh, close us. Oh, 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 JP's got JP's got one. The microphone's right in front of you. He's looking for a passage, folks. He's, the Bible's open. The pages are turning. The wheel's spinning. The hamster's dead. <laughs> so, in First Corinthians chapter seven, the paragraph beginning with verse twenty-five. 
about halfway down. Hold on, um, let me okay, let, let me get sorry. there. Not all of us were turning pages thirty seconds ago. First Corinthians seven. Um, it has this, you know, concerning the betrothed, etc. <laughs> and then sorry. the one that's like live as though um, they had none. Speaking of having wives, mm-hmm. can you kind of explain that <laughs> chunk in five minutes or less? In five minutes. <laughs> Um, no, I'll try to make a few comments, but I don't think I can explain all that in five minutes or less. Part of the problem is, um, there's a couple problems that make this a challenge. First Corinthians seven, I would, I would be happy. I've thought about teaching through first Corinthians and seven terrifies me. Um, seven's got to be one of the hardest chapters in the Bible for a couple reasons. One textual foundation. It's got the biggest number of difficult readings I'm aware of. Um, for instance, Anyone here got the NASB, New American Standard? What does New American Standard start with verse 25? Now concerning betrothed, right. So is this version daughters or is this um, fiancés? And part of the other difficulty is you're dealing with what's called casuistry, case law. You see, sometimes the New Testament will give you a general broad principle, love your enemies, other times it'll be like, if a man does this, then this. Chapter 7 is that. And Paul is responding to a letter they wrote. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So Paul knows the questions, and we've got to sort of reverse engineer the questions by the answers he gives. And so when Paul deals casuistically with um, topics that aren't dealt with elsewhere in the New Testament, it's much harder to compare and, and cross Crossbreed the get to get the answers. So First Corinthians seven is a very very challenging chapter simply because on the one hand what the Greek text is at certain points is challenging, and then he's dealing with topics he doesn't necessarily. I mean, he just goes case by case by case by case by case by case by case. Um, so you want me to just deal with the unmarried the uh, the virgins? You want me to deal with that? Oh, yeah, that part. Okay, we got two minutes. I will try to start next week addressing that, um, because that's huge. <laughs> yeah, I cannot do that in two minutes. I'm sorry. You're talking about specifically, if anyone wants to read it for next week, um, 31. Yeah. Yeah. We will pick that up next week. Our time is just about gone. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful Mother's Day. And uh, God bless. Godspeed.